HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is proudly brought to you by Whole Foods Market. Visit wholefoodsmarket.com or download the Whole Foods Market app to learn more and find the store nearest to you. Ever heard of a popcorn-driven robot? This week on Meet and 3, we're bringing you stories about the intersection of food and tech. We're interested in building swarms of many cheap, small robots and powering them and driving them forward with as little effort and as little energy as possible. We cover tech by land. Imagine if you could cut fresh microgreens onto your salad and eat it while the greens are still fresh and nutritious and delicious and alive. That dream is real. We cover tech by sea. We're building software-based business services to help shellfish growers uh, manage and grow their business. And we cover tech in the social media stratosphere. So it's not really necessarily an indictment on food media or, or media consumption at all. It's really, it's, it's how the robots decided they were going to weight human interaction. Tune in and get techie this week on Meet and 3. Available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Moxie Rosenblum. My dad, Harry Rosenblum, hosts Feast Your Ears on Heritage Radio Network. Right now, HRN is having a summer membership drive. Becoming a member is so easy, and you'll help support shows like my dad's. You can sign up for a one-time donation or become a monthly sustaining member by visiting heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. Let's keep food radio on the airwaves this summer. on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sherry Bayer. We're coming to you live from Roberta's Restaurant in Bushwick, Brooklyn. It is Wednesday, July 25th, 2018. This is the 185th episode of the series, which is dedicated to behind-the-scenes talents in the hospitality industry. Today, my guest is the president, CEO, and owner of a very highly regarded culinary school in America, and I will introduce him fully in a moment. First, as I do on every show, I will start out with my PR tip, and then later we will have my speed round game. 
industry news discussion, solo dining experience, and the final question. As the founder of Bayer Public Relations, I'm going to tip the show off with my PR tip of the week. So today's tip is to expand your business when you're ready. Yes, take a leap of faith and go for it when the time is right. And when is that time? Perhaps it's when an opportunity presents itself, or you just feel it in your gut, and it's something you've always wanted to do. Trust your instinct, and although it may be scary to leave your comfort zone and expand, growth can be great. So know when to grow and act on it. That's my tip today. Now, I'm really happy to have my guest here with me in the studio. It is Rick Smilo. He is the president, CEO, and owner of the Institute of Culinary Education, otherwise known as ICE, with locations in New York City and a new one in Los Angeles. In 1995, Rick acquired the predecessor school, Peter Kump's New York Cooking School, which was founded in 1975. ICE now offers 8- to 11-month career training diploma programs in culinary arts, pastry and baking, culinary management, and hospitality management. In 2016, DailyMeal.com ranked ICE the number one culinary school in America. Rick earned a BA in history from Emory University and an MBA in marketing from Kellogg School of Management at Northwestern University. And in 2010, he co-authored Culinary Careers, How to Get Your Dream job in food. So welcome, Rick. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, I'm really excited to talk with you and hear about how you how you got to where you are and, and bought this school and have remained there for a long time. Uh, so, Are you so, saying I have an unlikely background for... <laughs> Well, I, there's a longer bio, and I and and yes, I I read it, and I I you know I read enough here. So let's let's dive into a little your background and what after college or even in your childhood did you want to get into food and what led you into the the industry? Well, I would say professionally, I'm a, a marketing type and an entrepreneur, and uh, it was after you know ten or twelve, fifteen years of doing other things that. Uh, uh, led me to the school. And uh, I was a history major in college. Then I worked in advertising space sales and uh, for magazines. And the interesting thing about that is my goal at, say, age 21 or 22 was uh, perhaps to be a magazine publisher. And what's significant about that is its content. And I guess I've always been drawn to the uh, business of content. And at the school, uh, you know, our, our growth and that a lot of what I focus on is the content. So there's a consistency there. But uh, after uh, space sales, and I went to uh, uh, Northwestern Business School, or Kellogg as it's called, in Evanston, Illinois, and then worked uh, at Nabisco in a very, quote-unquote, classic package goods marketing um, uh, roles, and then uh, left there to do my first entrepreneurial uh, gig, which was a startup in the, of all things, pet snack business. I developed yes. a line of dog and cat snacks. I was <laughs> inspired at the time uh, by uh, Ben and Jerry's, by Smart Food, by Celestial Seasonings, and tried applying that to pet snacks. And uh, uh, a good friend of mine uh, left the prestigious firm of uh, Booz Allen Hamilton to join me in this, and I describe it as a pretty bad idea that we executed well. <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, managed, it, it was really uh, uh, an, an uphill battle. We were, we were a real company with real products, but we were competing against Ralston Purina and Heinz and Starkist 
you know, from a four-person office in Hoboken. So I uh, managed to sell that and then was looking for what to do next and uh, considered a whole bunch of things. And uh, I would describe it, you know, as, as an entrepreneur, I was looking for an alignment between my, my heart, my wallet, and my brain. Mm -hmm. And there were some things that were, you know, could have been lucrative, but my heart wasn't in it. And there were some things that could have been lucrative uh, and maybe it felt good, but, you know, it was a, a bad, the long-term prospects for the, the, the product or the business didn't seem good. Uh, when I heard about, well, it was actually, um, you reminded me of this, this interesting detail. There was a school, there was a business I looked at earlier. It was the Barbizon Modeling Schools, which was... I remember Barbizon. Yeah, sure. which was at the time, this is 1995, run as, as a franchise business. There were only 10 or 12 places left in America. And I spent a few months thinking about that. Um, you know, the owner wasn't really motivated, but what I took away from that was that um, that I could be interested in and and add value to a, a, a service or education type business. I, in my mind, I thought, well, Barbizon, what it was really about, and in many ways, it wasn't about, you know, people getting, you know, modeling contracts. It was about education and education of self-esteem. So I went back uh, uh, to the brokers I was working with, and I said, can you do a search of schools that, you know, within a certain radius and a certain size? And they started making cold calls, and one of them was to Peter Kump's New York Cooking School. Uh, Peter's uh, uh, health was, was failing, and um, there was no succession plan. And uh, I actually never met him. He was, he was in a hospice situation by the time I first saw the school, but it was literally about two weeks. And I'm, I'm someone who doesn't make quick decisions. I'm very deliberate. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but it was about a two-week period between when I first heard about it as an opportunity and, uh, uh, and Peter Kump passed away and they needed a small bridge loan to continue operations. I made that and that got me a, uh, a right to buy the business or, you know, a right of first refusal. So it's a, it's a, it's an unusual story and it's also uh, a timing thing. You know, I, I would like to say, you know, if, uh, if the whole course of history had been fast forward or reverse to use the cassette player model, um, you know, a couple months in either direction, um, right. you'd be here, you'd have this radio show. <laughs> I wouldn't be here <laughs> on your radio show. Yeah. But but what's amazing, well, it's an amazing story, but that it it was the right fit for you because it's been, you've you've now taken the 23 school. years? Yeah. Well, ex- nobody can fire me. <laughs> well, it's yours. <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, so so from the beginning then, what? how did you start, I mean, what was the process like of taking it over and then the name change? Because I moved to New York in 98, so... Uh, I do recall Peter Kumps. Um, and well, Peter, when Peter started it as as a sophisticated recreational cooking school, he uh, is he's credited with the idea that at a time when other cooking schools in the uh, late seventies and eighties were teaching recipes and meals, he was teaching cook, cooking techniques, uh, which was obviously a good idea. And there was there's a very famous course which we still teach today and I recommend to everyone listening to the show unless you're already an accomplished or 
reasonably accomplished chef. It's called Techniques of Fine Cooking, Level 1. And there was a Level 1, then there's a Level 2, there's a Level 3, there was a Level 4. And at some point, you know, way before my time, people said to Peter, well, if I'm taking all these courses, can, can I get a credential for it? And um, so quite, quite, quite unusual in America, um, our career programs grew out of the recreational. You know, if you were to hear the story of the CIA or Johnson of Wales or French Culinary Institute, it, it would be a different story. And, um, uh, you know, I quickly, in 95 when I got there, it was, it was I mean, I did something that, you know, I'm I find myself advising would-be entrepreneurs all the time, and I think I do have a lot of advice after all these years, and I always would advise them, don't go into a business that you haven't worked in or that you don't <laughs> understand, even though I did. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, when I, when I began, I, uh, uh, you know, and, the, and the, the business was much, much smaller, very few employees, and, you know, you really have to be able to multitask, and that's uh, one of the first things when I meet a would-be entrepreneur, I say, you know, well, you know, Joe, Jane, how do you feel about changing the topic you're focusing on 15 times in five hours? Because <laughs> as an entrepreneur in a small company, you know, it could be a small restaurant, a small widget maker, you know, you may need to do that. Right. But, um, uh, you know, we, we realized that it was the growing the career program and uh, formalizing it, so to speak, uh, was the way to grow and then create a bigger tent and everything could uh, uh, fall under that. So that was 1995. And, and at the time, um, uh, Peter had at least some space on 23rd Street. So when you moved here in 98, the school was on 92nd Street and there was the 12th floor on 23rd Street. Uh, by 1999, we moved fully off 92nd Street and, and everything was... At, at the time, it was newer and flashier. Um, yes, and I, I spent, I went to, I've been to, I was at the 23rd Street location many times of the years for for events, for, I mean, for, with the, the New York Women's Culinary Alliance as a part of that organization. I was the, I'm the ex-president of that. We used to do a lot of events with you. So, right, right. So I remember, I remember that location and... Um, We'll get into, well, we can get yeah, into it whenever yeah. you want. You're moved down, downtown. Well, and the name change took place in, uh, let me tell you what the planned, well, Peter Kump's New York Cooking School uh, sounded like a small school run by a guy named Peter, and if you went there, you'd see him. And that was the case, <laughs> when you, you know, in its early years. Uh, so it obviously wasn't a, a, a good name for the future, and, and I... Uh, I don't know who's out there that knew, knew Peter or, or who I might uh, uh, unknowingly offend by this, but the name Kump was so hard for people to remember and pronounce. It would be like uh, Peter Gumps, you know, Forrest Gumps, Mein Kumps, <laughs> you know, it <laughs> right. was, it was uh, an odd name. Well, our plan and planned name change date was 9-11-2001. No. Yes. We, we had done all the wow. work. We were going to, you know, flip the switch, so to speak, on the internet and all that on 9-11. And, of course, that was a, 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 quite, quite a day in the world. And uh, so there was, was you know, no, no news. But uh, over the, uh, you know, over the course of the fall, we rolled out the new name. And, uh, uh, but uh, true story that that was the date. 
Yeah, I'm sure. I will. Something like that you would certainly remember. <laughs> wow. Um, okay, so let's take a little break and then come back and talk more about all of the new changes and the, the, all the curriculum and everything you're doing there. I mean, there's so much more to get into. Uh, but uh, we'll take a little break here. So stay with us. This is All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. Today's program is brought to you by Whole Foods Market. From papayas and samosas to reishi mushrooms, if it's something that sounds delicious, chances are you'll find the freshest, best version of it at Whole Foods Market. They have more than 400 stores across the country, so if you consider pizza its own food group or just can't imagine when avocado toast wasn't a thing, Whole Foods Market has you covered. Visit WholeFoodsMarket.com to find a store near you. Whole Foods Market. Whatever makes you whole. Welcome back to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sherry Bayer. My guest today is Rick Smilo. He's the president, CEO, and owner of the Institute of Culinary Education, which everyone calls ICE, which has a nice like ring to it to say ICE. ICE is nice. Well, of course, <laughs> ICE, ICE has uh, another meaning these days that's in the news. And can I, I just have two anecdotes about that that are sort of funny that Go for it. And, and we've, you know, we, in either New York or Los Angeles, you know, the amount of, of uh, criticism or problem that we've had having the same acronym as, as Immigrations and Customs Enforcement is hovering near zero. So people understand there's a difference. But my first comment is, you know, ICE is much more in the news uh, because of the Trump presidency. And I'm happy to say that the leases we have in New York and Los Angeles will last much longer than the Trump presidency. <laughs> the second thing is there's actually a long tradition that has worked out okay of culinary schools and government agencies having the same acronym. Like, have you thought about the CIA and the CIA? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I have. <laughs> of course. <laughs> well, I had never thought of that, and I had never thought of the parallel between ICE and ICE and the CIA and CIA until this last 4th well, of July. I was jogging, and all of a sudden it goes into my mind, hey, that's in a government agency, too, and a culinary school. Yeah. I don't know why yeah, it took you... me so long. <laughs> but you got it. I did. You got it. So tell me about everything that's the curriculum and all the different programs that you offer and, and also the type of students you have. You have full-time, you have part-time. Uh, you know, you have a lot, there's a lot happening yeah. at your school. Well, uh, it's, the school is, is mostly... Uh, uh, diploma programs, about, I think of it as 75% of our activity is diploma programs, and I'll come back to that. Then there's about 15% that's recreational courses that could be uh, one to five sessions or for the general public. And then we have a very active uh, cooking party or cooking event uh, program too. But in the diploma programs, the, uh, the main ones are, of course, culinary arts, pastry and baking, restaurant and culinary management, and hotel and hospitality management. And then there's some uh, shorter specialty programs in cake decorating and bread baking. 
And uh, a diploma program is a is a you know a term or a credential. It's it's typically less than a a bachelor's degree or an associate's degree. And the programs take eight to twelve months, uh, depending on the schedule you're on. Uh, being in in big cities and you know the interest of of the consumers. I mean, we have really a wide range of schedules. It's you can go just in the morning, just in the afternoon, just in the evening. Uh, just on weekends. Uh, uh, sometimes in the year we have a schedule uh, that's quirky, but great for some people. It's Sunday, Monday, Tuesday nights. And, um, you know, we, the, the norm, I, I, I might say it's, it's changing, that the norm in America was for associate's degrees. And uh, at places like the CIA or Johnson & Wales, it makes sense. I mean, most of the people who go there, it's their, you know, it's what they're doing for college. Uh, and, and that seems to me valid. But if you've already been to college or if you're already above some certain age in your early 20s, um, you know, the, the feedback and the reality is a diploma is, is all you need. So we like to think that our program is uh, uh, very intensive, very sophisticated. Uh, it, it takes less time in your life to get through and depending on what you're comparing it to, more affordable. So um, diploma programs is, is the way to go. Yeah, so I, I was just going to tell you, because I don't know if you know this, I lived in Chicago before New York, and I had this moment where I, I thought I wanted to be a chef, and I went to cooking school in Chicago. I went to the Cooking Academy of Chicago, which was a very Wait, small school. Wasn't it called Chick? C-H-I-C? <laughs> you know, I guess it was. It's 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 folded. It's not around anymore, um, but... Uh, I, I always think if I lived in New York and I, at that time, and I went to decided to go to cooking school, I probably would have gone to Peter Kump's or ICE. I, I you know, I, oh, feel, for sure you would and have. who knows what, <laughs> where would have, my career would be now. But, um, but it's, you know, I, I think that, and that school isn't around anymore that I went to and your school has, has blossomed into this, this, uh, this beautiful new facility that you also have down at Brookfield well, Place your, your that we could school, talk about. Chick became, uh, <laughs> was, was acquired by a, company called Career Education Corporation, and they acquired a lot of independent schools, and they then licensed the Le Cordon Bleu name. So at some point, long after you went there, it was the Le Cordon Bleu College of Culinary Arts. But it's funny, I, on a trip, so you went there in 90... 96 to 7. Uh, sometime yeah. around that time, I went to Chick. Really? <laughs> I, no, I, I was in Chicago. Well, and I that's. Was I was thinking when you were telling me about your background, like our careers, we kind of overlapped or didn't overlap. But um, that, uh, yeah, and you're remember, very knowledgeable about the, your I industry. Mean, it, you know, this is we're talking about a departed school, but I remember yeah. walking through there, and I don't know if I got a tour, if I said who I was, but I remember going to a lower level in the basement. And it, everything was gray, gray paint, like like a like you were on the lower deck of an aircraft carrier. It was or not a pretty school. <laughs> it was it was there was nothing glamorous about the school, but I I did love it. I loved the hands on experience, and I felt at the time I wanted to learn the basics, and you know, and and that's what I I you know yeah. you go to you, you know you, I I did I I learned I learned a lot from that experience, and it helps me today with what I do. So I value it. Tremendously. Uh, so, but back to you. <laughs> so, changes at the school. Well, also, when you're talking about these degrees you have, let's just note, you, you have some very notable 
alum or chefs that have come out of out of your school. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I these days for shorthand when I when I um, talk about notable alum, I, I mention people on TV because when it push comes to shove, they're the ones that would be most known. So Gail Simmons is uh, she's. Uh, She's way up there in, yes. in, in notoriety and notability. For sure. And of course, she, she came to uh, ICE after uh, a start in journalism. Uh, she, she was a McGill graduate and had gone to journalism school. Uh, Mark Murphy, uh, you know, who's a sort of a regular you know, guest on Chopped and has the landmark restaurants in New York. Uh, Vivian Howard, uh, you know, who's won Emmys and Peabody's for PBS shows. Uh, even... Uh, I mean, she's no longer working there, but Susan Stockton, you know, who was the VP of, of culinary production for the Food Network, uh, yeah. you know, for a long time as a graduate. Uh, you know, and then there's people out west like uh, Steve Sampson, who's one of the, uh, you know, most uh, uh, recognized chefs cooking in the Italian genre in Los Angeles. Uh, Zach Young, uh, the pastry, pastry. chef. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm probably... Yeah. I, I could name a lot of people yeah. you know. <laughs> yeah, no, no. The great, great people have have come out of out of your school that have done very well with their their careers. So, what prompted you to move down to Brookfield Place into this beautiful facility? Yeah, it there? is. It is. Uh, it is. It is very beautiful and inspirational. It's. Um, uh, we are on the third floor of Brookfield Place, which is a huge complex, and we're sort of. Uh, you know, physically, we're sandwiched between part of the new location of Saks Fifth Avenue and the corporate headquarters of Meredith Publishing, you know, informally Time Inc. Publishing. And if you had told me back in the <laughs> 90s, early 2000s, that my school would end up between a corporate publishing headquarters and a major upscale department store, I would have, <laughs> I would have never, said that. I would have said guessed. that's impossible. Right. But uh, on 23rd, so the reason we moved is um, is because we had to. Um, the building we were in on 23rd Street that that uh, we've talked about, uh, we kept expanding within it, and at a time we were spread over six floors, and that particular building uh, didn't have a um, a real freight elevator, and we were moving speed racks, uh, you know what those are, of, mm-hmm. of food and garbage and equipment, and doing it neatly and cleanly, but, you know, seven days and seven nights a week, and the landlord um, uh, wasn't keen on another 10 or 20 years of that, that usage. So, um, much to my surprise, he said, uh, we're not talking about renewal, we're talking about you moving, <laughs> so, <laughs> which was a, uh, a shock to the system about uh, five, six years ago, but it, it ended up great. I mean, the, the, in Brook, Brookfield Place is such a large complex, and that we have, we have 75,000 square feet on one floor, so um, I, I would describe it, um, I can, this, this is a good radio description, because uh, I don't have, you're not looking at pictures out there. It's it's not like walking through an office building. It's like walking through a culinary village. It's uh, you know there's it, there's a lot of different uh, hallways and pathways and the main corridor. Um, a lot of windows overlooking the Hudson River in New Jersey and uh, uh, gets a lot of light and uh, and a lot of energy. And we you know very very carefully laid it out so that the the energy and the food and the cooking and the the, the visual stimulation was was spread out. Um, only bad thing about all that is it cost a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Building in Lower Manhattan in well, 2015. Did you, did you raise your tuition, or did you have to compensate that way to 
Uh, not, not really. Uh, uh, there was a lot of tuition raising in the years. I mean, over the long haul. Yeah, yeah, over my 23 years, but not, not in moving down there. Okay. Uh, what about Los Angeles? Well, that's that's the most uh, exciting new thing in our in our ice life. Um, we, you know, I mentioned these uh, Le Cordon Bleu schools, and they all uh, closed or were taught out in 15 cities in America in 2017, and we were able to to take over the lease essentially of the school that they had in Pasadena. Uh, Pasadena is a, you know, it's its own city, but is the way I describe it is its its relationship with Los Angeles is it's about 12 miles from Dodger Stadium, so, which is in downtown LA. And uh, Pasadena, um, in addition to being the home of the Rose Bowl and the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, it's where Julia Child grew up. Wow. Now, she didn't grow up in the building that we're in. Or in the, <laughs> I've been to the Rose Bowl once. <laughs> So I have a little bit of a reference point. <laughs> yeah, I've uh, I've uh, I've met the mayor of Pasadena as part of the uh, opening of the school, and you know he said anything I can do to help you. And my tongue-in-cheek answer is yes. I want really good seats for the Rose Bowl parade oh, someday. That, yeah. I, I that the time I went to the Rose Bowl, I went to the Rose Parade. I mean, I'm not a big parade <laughs> person, but this is a spectacular parade. <laughs> uh, yes. Yeah, so maybe someday there'll be an Institute of Culinary Education float in the Rose Bowl parade. It could happen. We could have edible flowers. It could happen. We could have Margaret Braun make them. Fantastic! <laughs> I love that you're tying it all together. Uh, but so. but but no. So we um, we uh, we got the you know the, the keys to the place, so to speak, last October, and you know it was already built as a culinary school, and it needed some refurbishment and and rebranding and painting and new ceiling tiles but stuff that was pretty easy and uh, we opened in March and uh, for now we're focusing just on the uh, career programs uh, not the recreational or the the cooking parties and it's it's going very well you know we start we we have culinary arts pastry and baking and uh, culinary and restaurant management we've started uh, a class at a different I mean you know, again, we have these different schedules. So in March, we had two classes running. By April, we had five classes. In May, seven. And uh, it's it's growing steadily. Um, you know, the first students haven't finished yet. I guess that happens sometime late fall. And, you know, the reception we've gotten out there is, has been great. Um, you know, we, we came with a good reputation. And, I mean, there's a lot of ICE alumni already living, working, and doing well out there. Uh, certainly, you know, the, the, the bigger names out there, uh, you know, Wolfgang Puck and Suzanne Goyne and John and Vinny and Michael Simarutsky. I, I mean, I, I think almost all the names that I just mentioned had been to ICE at some point in, in the mm-hmm. prior two decades. And uh, so this was a case where having a, a good reputation preceded us. And then um, there is a shortage of labor out there, just like every place else in America. And um, so, you know, everybody's rooting for us and, <laughs> and, and saying, you know, can, what, when will your externs be ready? <laughs> and, uh, you know, we can, you know, it, it's, we have a great record of, with externships and job placements in New York. And it's, you know, we're big enough so that it's not something I'm 
looking at or aware of on a on a day-to-day or weekly basis. But I have to say, with the first classes in Los Angeles, I'm keenly interested <laughs> in where they externship because I want you know we you know we want to obviously do what's best for the student, but we'd like to you know s- spread the the talent around and and get a variety of restaurant organizations and chefs familiar with with what we're doing. That's terrific. So let me ask you the question I had for my last guest. On episode 184, I had on Brandon Hoy. He's the co-founder and COO of Roberta's right here where we are in Bushwick. So he wants to know, can you describe the difference and the quality and the quality of applicants from when the school started until now, and what do you think the difference is between the skill set and work drive between the two? And I was thinking as you were talking, I'd like to add on, is there a difference you notice perhaps between New York City East Coast versus L.A. West Coast? I, I, I don't notice much difference between at all between East Coast and West Coast. Okay. I mean, uh, I mean, whether it's a student's aspirations or their backgrounds, uh, at this point, it's it's quite similar. And and the word I'd use to describe it overall is is diverse. I mean, diverse in terms of cultural background, in terms of work background, in terms of uh, I mean, age. You know, it's the you know our our sort of sweet spot is is sort of twenty to thirty year olds. Um, some 18 and 19 year olds and of course some 40, 50 and 60 year olds. But, um, I'd say the, the, the biggest difference in the students, you know, when we started, it was a less formal school. Uh, I mean, you go back, you know, when I first got there, it, it wasn't accredited, uh, but it was a very high quality education. Uh, it was more, there were, there were more, what I might call uh, dilettantes, you know, food, food lovers and ser- people who seriously wanted to learn, but um, uh, not necessarily, you know, make their way in restaurants. Uh, today, you know, there's no dilettantes, and I mean, and it's been that way for a decade. I mean, I mean, maybe there's some, you know, people that they're, you know, retired, uniformed person. You know, it, it could be a a fireman who's, you know, 50 years old with a pension and, you know, he or she, you know, are doing it. They're not quite sure what they're doing, but most people have, you know, everyone else has career aspirations. In in some ways, um, I'd say the students of today are, um, there's fewer career changers, fewer white collar career changers. And I think, uh, you know, from an industry perspective, that's good because the white collar career changer, you know, the, the, you know, there's sort of the stereotype or, you know, the, the 32 year old banker who's burnt out from banking and really wants to be a, uh, you know, a chef, uh, you know, he or she thinks they want to do that, but it's hard work and, uh, you know, probably lower pay than making before. And so there's all these elements, um, that led them to not stick with it. Or let me put it this way, if you were a career changer coming from a higher income, you know, the passion in your heart to do what you wanted to do had to be that much stronger. We still have career changers today, but um, the ratio is less and you have more people, um, maybe they're already working in, in in food service and, you know, want to up their game or, I mean, they could, they could be working, you know, in a coffee shop or, or even McDonald's. Mm-hmm. I used to think that 
you know, the first time I heard about McDonald's as a background, um, I thought that was, eh, you know, I don't know, you know, my eyebrows raised. And I realized that's entirely wrong. You know, a young person working in McDonald's, they're serving food, they're serving people, the people that are there are happy. You know, if you've worked at McDonald's and you know there's more and you want more and you want to be in a service and food and hospitality business, that's, that's a great background. Yeah. If you're young enough. <laughs> <laughs> but um, anyway, that, the big thing is uh, slightly fewer career changers. And, uh, you know, it, it, it could be, you know, people coming from carpentry or IT or nursing or, uh, uh, you know, when they, they're tired of what they're doing or they always wanted to do something else. And uh, I'm sure that they make better employees or, you know, on a percentage basis, there's more uh, stickiness in, in them staying in the field. Great. Well, I think Brandon she should be satisfied with that answer or else I'm, I think I'm supposed to text him. Anyways, we're oh, going to... Oh, but then there's, as, as far as the whole generation, uh, there's another part of the question, or maybe it was almost implied in the question, you know, comments on millennials or generation and yeah. X. And I don't know. I mean, it's, it's, there's... Big picture, you know, the people of today versus 20 or 30 years ago, I, I, or 50 or 100, maybe there's uh, more short-term thinking and people wanting, you know, rewards, but it's, you know, it's a shift. It's obviously in, in all of society and culture as a whole, but um, in many ways, I, I think, I, I know in some cases, and I'd like to think in much broader, that... Um, that industry is reflecting that, and, and it's not that people, you know, that, that young cooks or people working in Garde Manger are getting promoted or rewards or trophies when they shouldn't, but man, if you're an employer today and you don't treat your junior employees well, you're crazy because you're sh everybody's short of people and, you know, they're being offered slightly more money someplace else and, you know, it's, it's um, there's such a shortage of of trained people and motivated people that, um, you know, I, I think both getting recognition and, and then the flip side of it, let's say not being abused has just got to be, you know, paramount. If I was a restaurant owner and I learned that a line cook left because the sous chef was abusing them, whatever abuse means, I'd like fire the sous chef, you know, like what's your problem? Right. Okay. Well, we can get into this more, but we're gonna we we need to take a break. So we're going to take one, and then we're gonna come back, and we're gonna play my speed round game, and we'll talk some industry news. This is only industry on Heritage Radio Network.
back. This is All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sherry Bayer. My guest today is Rick Smilo. It's time for my speed round game. So what this is, is I'm going to name a couple things and, and you pick your preference, such as chocolate or vanilla. So it's a, it's a choice. And chocolate. We tro- okay, there you go. <laughs> that was the test. Chocolate. All right, here we go. Eat in or eat out? Uh, okay, politically correct answer. If my wife's cooking, eat in. If I'm cooking, eat out. <laughs> That's a first, a I think, cook. for this show. Fantastic. Do you know that she she took tech the first time? Oh my gosh, I left this out. The very first time I heard of Peter Kump's New York Cooking School was about four years before I acquired it because my wife, who on it, we went on a second date and she was taking this class techniques of fine cooking level one as as a thing to do at night and, it and was that's just how like, you met no it's not no i wasn't taking the class but it's like you know well you know i mean you yeah know, it's a second yeah. date you don't know each other very well and she said oh i just started taking this class and i said that's nice and, you know and then we started talking about something else but the first time i heard about the school was from the woman i ended up marrying and i'm still married to which is, There's and, so much amazing things <laughs> happening during this interview that I'm learning. There's a lot of, a lot of timing um, yeah. Uh, kismets. Yeah, seriously. Okay, let's try to get through this with speed because we're, we're a little short on time, but we'll be okay. Okay, how about wine, beer, cocktail, or mocktail? Cocktail. Tasting menu or a la carte? Tasting menu. Small plates or large plates? Small plates. Communal table or chef's counter? Communal table. Tipping or all-inclusive charge? Tipping, but I understand and respect the all-inclusive charge. Okay. (laughs) Selling pet food or people food? (laughs) People food. They're much more responsive. (laughs) Or you can understand their responses. Apparently. Daytime flights or red eyes? Uh, daytime flights, though I've I've come I coming back from California, you know I'm now I'm going there about once a month. I I take the red eye because I it's because I can do it and you don't lose the the day or the mm-hmm. time. I typically go out on a Sunday, come back on Thursday on the red eye. If I'm I don't plan anything big on Friday and it works out fine. Yeah, those red eyes are still full though. Yeah, when I when I go out to California, that's typically what I do. But the the flight's kind of it's too short really to get a good that's night's right. sleep. That's right. But it's it's still usually what I do. I think I wanted to see. I figured you're going back and forth, and you answered my my other question was <laughs> how often are you going? So you answered that. Okay, two more: cheese plate or dessert? Uh oh. I mean, that's there's so many types of desserts, but I. I definitely have more of a savory tooth than a sweet tooth. So uh, if it was between a sweet dessert and a cheese plate, I'd say a cheese plate. If it was a savory dessert and a cheese plate, I'd say some of each. So interesting. <laughs> How about Manhattan or Brooklyn? That's the last one. <laughs> well, I'm here in Brooklyn, and uh, but I've, I've never lived in Brooklyn, never worked in Brooklyn, um, so I guess I'll have to say Manhattan. And the school's in Manhattan, too. But if I was... If I was if I was younger and someone Perhaps. else, I'd live in Brooklyn. Oh, okay. <laughs> Great. That's the game. 
You 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 moved quickly through those. Oh, I, oh, it was yeah, good. Yeah. It was well, good. You, there were no. Uh, you, you didn't stump me with anything, and uh, you let me uh, waffle when I needed yes, to waffle. Yes. Yes. Well, I like the game. I like playing it. So we have to talk some industry news. Uh, sad, sad news this weekend on on Saturday. Jonathan Gold passed away. Uh, He was 57 years old. The article I picked out was in the Los Angeles Times because he was the Los Angeles Times restaurant critic, and he passed away from pancreatic cancer. Um, You know, coming quickly after the passing of Anthony Bourdain, this is our our industry's being, being hit hard. People are really, really sad. Uh, I'm sad about this. He, he really. I mean, talk about Los Angeles. You know, he he put these restaurants on on the map and and covered. Said he covered. Uh, he wrote more than 1,000 reviews since the 80s, and he really championed these family-run restaurants that he he um, he wrote beautifully about, and uh, will be deeply missed. So. Yeah, it's, I mean, given the fact that uh, we now have a, a, a branch school location in Los Angeles, it, it was, I, I, I got to know of him better than I otherwise would have. I uh, actually, I, I reached out to him in the last year and tried to get together. And, you know, t- I mean, he's there. I wasn't there all the time, so the timing right. never worked out. I, I met him once or twice, like at an IACP conference, but. Um, his his impact on the city and what the people there or, or even in the rest of the country think about Los Angeles is, is really profound. And, and the comparisons to uh, Tony Bourdain are just really close. He, he was the Tony Bourdain of Bef- before Tony before Bourdain. Before Tony Bourdain yeah. was covering all these places yeah. on TV, he was writing. Yeah. And there's this movie which... Uh, uh, have you seen City of Gold? I did. It came out, a, I think it was a couple years ago. I remember it was a documentary. Yeah. I saw it here in in New York, and it was a wonderful documentary about him. Yeah, it's about an hour long, and I'm, I'm, I don't know whether it's Netflix or Amazon, but I'm sure it's findable, and I would highly recommend uh, that, that everybody watch that. Uh, it's, it's an interesting portrait of the city and of so many small... Uh, Restaurants, what I guess his term was traditional restaurants. He didn't call You're them right. He didn't ethnic call them ethnic. Or, or, yeah, they were they were traditional restaurants. Or um, I said that's the family run. Yeah, but it was you know, and and I've, I've over the last well, it's been four days. I've had the chance to talk to some people out there, whether it's at the school or or other places. And you know, the question is, who's going to carry on in his tradition? Um, it's. It's not known, you know, I mean, literally, I guess he was the restaurant critic for the Los Angeles Times, so someone will fill that position. But it was interesting that if getting the city and people to know the diversity of cuisine there was his mission, um, it's good to say that, that even though he passed away so young and prematurely and quickly, in a way his work was done. You know, he's... You know, so many reviews, and I mean, everybody. When I, I, I think, if you were to say to anybody in Southern California the sort of Jonathan Gold point of view of food or eating or restaurants, they would they would know what it means. And the other thing I'd, I'd add to that is, is that you know, in the last two years, I've 
I've spent a lot more time there. I mean, I've probably been there 13 or 14 times the last two years. And uh, I, I made a point, particularly earlier on. I mean, now we have students and employees, and I spend more time in Pasadena. But I, I did what I could to, to be like Jonathan Gold and get to know the city. But I mean, even just the geography and the, the highways. And I came to two sort of realizations, and it's easy to compare to New York. And that's that um, the, the city, I mean, it's both L.A. County and Orange County, it's such a, like a, a quilt, picture a quilt that, you know, 100 people contributed to or, or a grid, you know, 10 by 10 cells of, of neighborhoods. And compared to New York City, I just feel like on a percentage basis, more people pass through more neighborhoods on their way to whatever mm -hmm. they're doing than they do in New York. You know, New York is at least, you know, historically is so Manhattan-focused and everything sort of emanates from there. And there's lots of people in Manhattan who, you know, have to think of reasons to go to Brooklyn or Queens, and there are a zillion reasons. But um, in Los Angeles, uh, people are just passing through this grid or this quilt much more. And the neighborhoods where the traditional restaurants are, whether it's K-Town, that's Koreatown, or mm -hmm. a Filipino neighborhood or a Mexican or... Um, or Japanese, uh, or, or, or Little Egypt, are, are sort of spread out all over the place. Right. And um, and then, of course, you know, the main mode of transportation there, for better or worse, is car. Mm -hmm. And so, um, uh, in a way, in, in a very good way, it's all these places are more accessible, more known. And then the um, the thing that goes along with that is is for young you know taking it back more to the chef driven or fine dining world whatever fine dining means is that um there's if you were a a, a young chef wanting to open your own place or or you have one restaurant and you're looking for a second location there's so many neighborhoods that you know are less expensive and they're on the fringe of a neighborhood that's more expensive or more you know has more you know has diners who can spend more so uh uh, yeah, it may take you too long to drive there, but it just—it's just, it, just yeah. like more of an open palette. Yeah, and he—I mean, yeah, he—he—he he, he put these restaurants on people's radars, and you know, Ruth Reichel, who's she she hired him for Los Angeles Times she hired him for Gourmet and there was I read an article there's lots of articles out there and lots of sentiments that people really should should look up because there's so many so many great stories about him she was saying when she met him or at one point that he had said he had eaten every taco on on Pico Boulevard and she thought he was like a hyperbole or exaggeration and he was like no literally he had I mean, he <laughs> did he did his he ate everywhere. He went back to places. He, he, he did his work, and he will be greatly missed. And uh, sentiments to his his family and and friends. And it's just really sad news. So, um, yeah, wish we had happier things to talk about in industry news. But that's what happened this week. So yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. He, uh, you know, and he was a. Uh, and he was a fun character too. Yeah, he, I, I heard him speak true. at the an LA Food Bowl event in March. Uh, you know about uh, should the Michelin Guide come back to Los Angeles? Uh, you know, it was a panel, or he led the panel, and uh, you know, opinionated, smart, savvy, yeah. wonderful person. Indeed. 
Okay, we're going to take one more break here. Come back and we'll do my solo dining experience and we'll have the final question. This is All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. Welcome back to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sherry Bayer. It's time for my solo dining experience. This week, it's at Maypop. Here's the rundown. The location, 611 O'Keefe Avenue, New Orleans, Louisiana. The concept, Southeast Asia by way of Southeast Louisiana, sister restaurant to MoFo. Chef and owner, Michael Gulada. Why did I go? Because I was down in New Orleans for Tales of the Cocktail, and I was hoping to see Michael, who I know, and try out his new place. And I wanted to try his dim sum menu, because I had heard wonderful things about it. So my experience. So I went on Saturday for a dim sum brunch. I had a reservation for one. When I arrived, I opted to sit at the bar. I asked for Michael, but he was at his other restaurant, MoFo, so I missed him. But the staff took really good care of me, and I had an awesome time. What did I get? So I had three things. I had the pork and cane syrup sausage stuffed sesame balls with chili oil. I had octopus octopus shumai with spicy mustard and head cheese and blue crab soup dumplings. My take was all delicious, rich flavors, very unique. I over-ordered a little bit. Actually, it wasn't that much food. There were three of the, the sesame balls, and there was uh, like four, four of the octopus shumai and four dumplings. So it was a little much for me, but I wanted to try everything, and I was glad I did. The ambiance was, it's a big space. It's sort of industrial feel. It has a large bar. It has a spacious dining room. And uh, it has a corner location. So there's big windows and lots of natural light. So it's perfect for, I'd say, solo eats or dining with friends. Interesting tidbit. Michael was recognized by Food & Wine magazine in 2016 as one of its best new chefs, which is a great honor. They only give that to 210 chefs, or if there's two chefs at a restaurant, then it might be 11 or 12, but it's it's only 10 a year, so it's it's a big accomplishment. Personal fun fact. So um, two years ago when I was down at Tails, I went to his other restaurant, MoFo Solo, and I, I missed him there. Apparently, it's funny because I see Michael all around the country. We've ran into each other at Atlanta Food and Wine Festival, South Beach Wine and Food Festival, um, but I, I never get to see him in New Orleans. So the cost was $25, not including tax and gratuity. Would I go back? Definitely. Website is maypoprestaurant.com. So that's that. 
Solo Dining in New Orleans. Wow. I'd like to go to that restaurant. Yeah, it was really good. Blue He's Crab and Head Cheese Dumplings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Huh? Uh-huh. <laughs> you don't find that everywhere. No. Very unique. So it's time for the final question. My next guest, as you alluded to earlier, is Margaret Braun. She is a pioneering cake designer and the author of Cakewalk, her work transcends edible media to sculpture, illustration, design, and ceramics. She is uber talented and cool. Margaret, uh, Rick, what would you like to ask Margaret? And I know her a little, or I used to know her better, I think, as she got more talented and uber cool. You know, she, <laughs> she left me behind or something like that. But um, I, have, I have two questions for, for Margaret. Uh, one is I, I know in her... You know, currently she's she's focusing on uh, not working as much with sugar, but in making pottery and ceramics mm-hmm. for for chefs or for restaurants. So the question is, uh, what chef or restaurant would she most like to make custom ceramics for? You know, to be used as serviceware. And the second question, going back to her, what she's more known for, is um, what uh, I don't know what of, of her cake works if you want to call it that what uh if she had to pick a favorite what what was the theme and what inspired it and maybe who was the client or what was the occasion they're which, both, will, which will be hard to answer it's hard but they're great questions so i met margaret back in like 98 or 9 when i first moved to new york and i was looking for work and dabbling in things i assisted her on a, on a gig she had, a photo shoot, where I, I was, I don't, I just remember her carrying one of her huge cakes down these steps of her apartment that were extremely narrow, and it, it was, but anyways, we'll talk more about it next week. <laughs> She's, um, so I've known her since then, and um, I'm really excited to have her on the show. She's, and you're absolutely right, she is now doing more with ceramics. So, that's the show. That went pretty quick. It always does. But uh, I feel like uh, we we filled the 45 minutes plus well, and it was really great to hear about your background and everything that that you're doing with ICE and how you've taken the school and just grown it into this this, uh, really amazing, amazing school with with now two locations. And you know what our our tagline or our buzz line is i'll tell you it's fine it's fine <laughs> don't leave me hanging yes find your culinary voice and uh that ethos is is throughout the school and you know what that means is that we think there's so many avenues you can take your culinary education and we don't you know we're not saying that fine dining is better than than a food truck or catering or cake decorating um but there's so many avenues and outlets, uh, certainly food media, food journalism, and uh, we want to be there to help people find their culinary voice. That's a great tagline. And you found your voice and calling through through this, through finding Peter Kump. So I'm glad that worked out for you. <laughs> <laughs> no, oh, Headphones fell off, yeah. All right. Lost the, the headphones share. because I enjoyed my joke so much. No. <laughs> No, but I wasn't really joking. Like seriously, you've 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 done very well, and I'm so glad I've gotten to know you a bit. 
over the years, and congratulations on all your well, success. Thank you. thank you for inviting me here today. Yes, you're very welcome. So my guest today has been Rick Smilo. He's the president, CEO, and owner of the Institute of Culinary Education, as we said, nickname ICE, and their locations are in NYC and LA. Their website is ice.edu. You can follow Rick on Instagram at Rick underscore Smilo and on Twitter at IcePrez. And you can also follow on both social media outlets, Ice Culinary. Wow, this, that little plug may help me get over 1,000 uh, followers. I'm at 935 now, wondering how I'll get to 1,000. By This by, might be it. This is it. This, this is, is it. it, listeners. <laughs> Follow follow Rick, because I want credit. <laughs> and follow me. Follow me. I'm at Sherry Bayer. I'm at Bayer PR and at All Industry. My Facebook page is All in the Industry. My website's BayerPublicRelations.com and SherryBayer.com. You can find all of our shows archived at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. We are also on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify. And you can subscribe to my show. You can leave reviews. I'd love to get your feedback. Thanks again to Rick. Thanks to my engineer today, Matt. I am Sherry Bayer, and I'll be back next week with another live show. I hope you'll tune in then, and thank you for being part of All in the Industry. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.